Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In the spirit of ANU's motto, which is first to know the nature of things, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and waterways, which were never ceded. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend our respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples listening today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. I'm here to make a public statement. Look, I'm going to uh, shirt from Mr I am a fighter and not a fighter. I don't think, I know. I want to thank uh, that fellow down under. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Welcome to Democracy Sausage. Mark Kenny here from the Australian Studies Institute at the Australian National University. I'm also with the School of Politics and International International Relations, as is my colleague and pod partner, Dr. Maria Taflaga, Senior Lecturer in Political Science here at the ANU. Welcome, Maria. Hello, Mark. Hello, everyone. And happy 250th episode of Democracy Sausage. Happy 250th episode to our wonderful listeners, some of you who have been here with us the entire time. Pretty well all the way through, that's right. Um, quite a journey. And and that actually started before the 2019 election. So we watched that very sort of strange election, really, where Labor went in well ahead and came out still in opposition, uh, which was a fairly confronting moment, um, really sets up, I suppose, what then happened, Albanese becoming leader of the opposition and that whole Morrison period and, and so forth. We can get into a bit of that because it's also the one-year anniversary of the Albanese government. There have been a few retrospectives and, and analysis uh, analyses in, in the newspapers and other places. Uh, we're going to do that with Professor Peter Van Onselen from the University of WA. Uh, he's also uh, a columnist with The Australian. Um, he's connected to Griffith University as well. He's had multiple roles. He's been at Channel 10 on the project as political editor and so forth. So he's uh, well placed to have this discussion. Welcome, Peter. Thank you. And hello to both of you and congratulations as well on the anniversary. And what what perfectly timed an anniversary it is, you know, to go with the one year anniversary of, of the new government. So it'll be fun to to pick into that. I, I, I've been trying to sort of, I, I started this year uh, for most of it actually still in daily journalism, trying to understand the Albanese government or assess how it was traveling with that sort of inability to break out of the daily news cycle. Yeah. But in the last couple of months, as you mentioned, I'm not doing that anymore. So uh, I've had the chance to sit back and and relax a little bit and not be quite as close to the fray when it comes to what's been happening and, and you know, whether that's changed my judgments um, you know, is for others to assess. But I didn't even realise, guys, that it was uh, that it was a sitting week yesterday until halfway through the day uh, when an ex-colleague of mine reminded me of that. So I took the opportunity to quickly put question time on. Uh, I probably should have been aware of that with the fact that we were talking the following day about how they've been travelling. I mean, I, I don't think I realised it was a sitting week, if I'm perfectly honest. So, right. so. Yeah. Well, I it, it, it's a it's a really good point though, because such is the sort of quotidian demand of of um of daily reporting that you what you do get is attention to the detail, but you don't get 
as I think you're getting at, Peter, the the ability to step back far enough to see a decent sort of slice of the picture, a decent view of what's going on, and make and to make the sorts of different judgments that can come with that little bit of extra room. Yeah, and I think it brings you closer to how voters are perceiving a government. I mean, look, obviously, you know, whether you're following the daily news or not, if if you're someone like like us who are obviously profoundly interested and engaged in politics anyway, that's not necessarily the same as most voters, uh, but you're closer to that than I think you are if you're doing daily news. And, and I can see, as much as I'm you know, loathe to be critical of, of anyone who follows daily news because they're writing amongst it mm. and, and, you know, it, it's an incredibly important thing to do. But the perspective about what matters and doesn't, I think you're a little bit closer to that if you're not following daily news because most people, events that happen each day or each week or each month, they're not paying attention necessarily unless it really hits home to them in terms of how they're trying to live and, and run their life if the issue is particularly close to them or if it's just a, a moment in time where they happen to have the news or the radio or or whatever it might be on where they come across uh, you know a, a political event that they otherwise might miss uh, in a contemporaneous sense. Yeah, Maria, it's a really interesting point that Peter makes because I, I read Catherine Murphy's piece a couple of days ago, which was a very good piece. I think she'd spoken to the PM and there was, you know, it was a very sort of discursive piece. And at one stage in it, because she has, for other reasons, had stepped away from the daily attention, uh, dealing with some some private matters uh, and had only just sort of stepped back into it. And, and she she had a little section in her in her long piece where she spoke in a kind of a contemporary sense uh, about what she un- what she understands is happening in politics at the moment and it was just the kinds of fragments of information that that Peter's referring to there rather than the kind of detailed rigorous uh, you know continuous stream of information that daily reporters are, are sort of holding on to and dealing in yeah, absolutely. And I, I guess I have two things to say about that. Like one is, well, this is exactly why we're always saying, you know, voters use heuristics, right, to to work out their, their vote choice because they don't have the time or resources to dedicate to observing political elites in the sort of minutiae that you know, press gallery journalists are paid to and tragics do for free, Um, you know. Um, um, And then the other sort of thing that I guess is sort of important is that it goes to the way news is produced now, and this was certainly not the case, uh, you know, maybe even 20 years ago or 15 years ago. Journalists had more time to think themselves, and you can kind of see how if everyone is in a sort of feedback loop of um, fast news production and responses, you can kind of see how it was it has been really challenging for governments to make complex arguments or to advocate for policy because, you know, someone who was doing your jobs as you were doing quite recently, you're kind of like sick of it, right, mm. after like a day and a half because you've sort of been through all the things that, that are kind of there to say, but but the public might not have even heard about Not even the started issue. to hear about it, let alone got sick of it. Precisely. Yeah. And I think it kind of goes to what I think is an, a kind of important achievement on one part um, by the Albanese government, which is I think they've actually like given the structural difficulties of having conversations, like I think they've done quite a good job of of not like ruling out certain things, you know, as like the end point of a conversation and being able to actually sort of build a narrative that is required 
in order to entertain any kind of uh, reform. And it sort of makes me think about something we were talking about a few weeks ago before the budget. Like we were talking a bit about the Hawke government and the and the Keating government, which which spent you know thirteen years essentially building cases for reform and introduced important reforms um, throughout. And you could argue something sort of similar on one level for the for the Howard government. You know, their first two terms were very much structured like that. Then they got very distracted by foreign policy, right, because of 9-11. And then they won that huge Senate majority and didn't have conversations and mm. just made hell, a hell of a lot of legislative changes because they controlled the Senate and they got booted out for it, <laughs> right? But but it sort of goes to the point that you can't actually do these things overnight and so that's been an interesting kind of point of critique, I suppose, of the Albanese government um, at this sort of one-year mark. And I'll stop talking there and give someone else a go. Well, it's a, it's a really interesting point, isn't it, Peter, that uh, that point about the, the cadence, I suppose, of uh, of the way the government is trying to influence the political and political slash news cycle, that there is quite a deliberate attempt to be a bit more orthodox. Albanese was talking about the Hawke government as his kind of, I, I suppose, central model uh, before he became prime minister, referencing some of those things that Maria talks about, you know, sort of policy debates, um, orthodox processes, these sorts of things. Uh, and Albanese, we all knew, had in the back of his mind the sort of hyped up chaos, really, of the sort of Rudd-Gillard period. And I think that he's been much more clever about how he's looked to do that. And I don't mean that pejoratively. I mean it as a compliment. He's been much more clever in how he's tried to make that shift than, for example, Tony Abbott was when he came in in 2013. Now, at one level, that wouldn't be hard to be more clever than that government was early on, although they did end up surviving with multiple prime ministers for a long term government over three cycles. But they tried, and you'll remember this, Mark. I do remember it they, very well. They tried to shut out doing daily news, feeding yeah. the beast. They just turned it, it off, basically. They did. Now, conceptually, I agree with them because conceptually, I think that there's value in that if it's achievable. But of course, it's just not achievable. And the reason I say that Anthony Albanese's government has been more clever, they have continued to feed the daily news beast because daily news is, is a requirement, but they haven't done it at the expense of some of these changes that they're trying to put in place, including having better processes. So they're, they're basically trying to walk and chew gum at the same time. They recognise that the media needs stories every day. You can't tell, I know this from experience, you can't tell a journalist that's required to fill 90 to 120 seconds of television time in a news bulletin, guess what, there's no news from the government today. So you're out. You have to give them something. Uh, it's the same for print. You know, it's the same for radio airwaves that need to be filled. So they are doing that. They they are active in that sense, but they're not active in that sense at the expense of process and trying to put in place proper processes across the policy cycle as just one example uh, in contrast to, to some of the, the missteps in the latter part in particular of the Morrison years. So they're doing both. And I think that's important. Whereas the Abbott government tried to just shut down the need to do daily news in the hope of then, I think, potentially, we're speculating now, having processes in place that they thought would allow for bigger picture changes, whether you agree or disagree with them. But they never got to point B, did they? Because point A uh, did them so much damage, quite apart from other things. And the reason for this is Abbott, in one way, was reacting to the Rudd, in particular, Rudd-Gillard governments. But both of them, both of their those, I guess, those two kind of governments' errors, if you think about it, was to sort of see 
communication and media as an end in of itself rather than as the sort of an important stage of a policy process, right? You know, mm. which is actually got to start with ideas, considerations of implementation before you can even go about trying to build a coalition to achieve it or, you know, at, to legislate for it and then to explain and, and sort of sell it to the population before you evaluate it. I mean, I think one of the sort of smaller news stories from about a couple of weeks ago was that I think Andrew Lee is, has basically got some kind of um, organ that is going to be doing evaluation. Like that's actually very exciting to policy nerds because if you don't evaluate anything, you don't you actually really don't know if it was any good. And we've had a lot of crap. Like we've wasted a great deal of money on on public policy um, programs that that don't kind of work. And part of that is because of this sort of breakdown in a sort of typical understanding of how one should implement policy mm. and account for what mm. we're actually doing. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you remember that line of Margaret Thatcher that, you know, the trouble with socialists is they eventually run out of other people's money. <laughs> the truth is governments have been sort of quite loose with the way they've used other people's money for a whole lot of programs, often with the best of intentions, no question about it. You know, really well-designed programs, that is from the base of what they knew at the outset, well-designed, well-intentioned programs costing a lot of money and they're not properly evaluated and money is just wasted in that process all across all across different portfolios. And it's, um, yeah, so it's a, it's a very good point you make. Well, or it ends up as robo-debt. Right. Well, yeah, yeah. 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 That's yeah, right. Um, yeah. the, just back on Pete's point, though, about the uh, the, the Abbott government, just because it's a really interesting historical detail. Um, they the, the Abbott government did, for the reasons you've both spoken about, you know, really react to the to the Rudd Gillard period and and the way politics had sort of really kind of hyped up the whole cycle had kind of um, accelerated appreciably in that process, and then. The, the uh, Abbott government gets elected, I think it was September 7, 2013, and by November, by the end of November, December, it was already behind in the polls. That is the fastest transition from winning an election to be in a losing position in news poll and the other polls, I think it was news poll, but certainly uh, Nielsen poll as well, that any government's ever done. Which says something about extraordinary, yeah, yeah, second highest majority too in in the post war era. So, yeah, it was, so it was actually an incredibly fast. That's ball. right. It was they had ninety seats to Labor's fifty five after that election, just from memory. Um, it, and the, it, look, the other thing to mention in the context of that uh, is that it then is also remarkable, is it not, that they had such a fast pivot to being the the non preferred actor in the two party contest, according to news poll. Yeah, yet they survived for nearly nine years, becoming a long-term government with multiple prime ministers. Maybe that's the answer within it, uh, that, that this was an Abbott factor as much as anything else, because he was never popular, but he was a very good opposition leader if an opposition leader's primary target is to get yes. into government to become a prime minister. On that evaluation basis, and people would say that there are other evaluations, but on that one alone, uh, in terms of practical politics, he was probably one of the best opposition leaders Australia's ever had. Uh, he but probably that was. And, and a good or a popular prime minister. No, he probably was in that narrow sort of definition of it. And mm. frankly, the coalition bungled the 2016 election, the next election, uh, and won it by one seat. I mean, that, so that all of that majority, bar one, was, was lost, surrendered in that 2016 mm. election under Malcolm Turnbull. And probably 
had Abbott not won so big in 2013, it would have been a one-term government. But of course, we don't have one-term governments, generally speaking. We haven't had one since 1932, I think. So, um, but we've seen a lot of- Which brings us back to the Albanese government, doesn't it? Because it does. they've got a, a wafer-thin majority, but they are incredibly popular and against a very unpopular opposition leader, whether he's still there come the next election or not remains to be seen, but there aren't a lot of alternatives knocking at the door. So what happens to them? Do they become unusual as a one-term government losing, which we haven't seen for a very long time? Or do they do what is also unusual, which is become a government that managed to, manages to increase its majority after its first election? Well, it's, it, it's done something either. else. It's done something else already, which is it's increased its majority between elections, which oh, hasn't happened true. for 102 <laughs> years. Um, that's an extraordinary thing. Yeah. Um, that just doesn't happen, right? Suddenly it did happen, and uh, there's a couple of other, or at least there's at least one other by-election coming now, of course, no, in I, Fadden. I, I, think, yeah. I think they'll the, the Libs should be able to hold Fadden, I think. I don't think there's anyone well, saying... they've got that, a real problem if they don't do that. Yeah, that's right. It's about a 10% margin or something in that kind of order. Um, and, and if Cook comes up as well, so that's Fadden, and if Cook comes up as well, which is Morrison's seat, and there is a wide expectation that it will, then that's an even safer margin for for the Libs. But that said, um, the risk for both sides in those by-elections is a decisive move one way or the other. If if voters in Queensland, for example, abandon the Albanese government, I don't think there's a lot of evidence to suggest that at the moment, but, but who knows, that would not be good for the prestige of the government. It would take away some of the credit it got from that amazing result in Aston. Conversely, if, uh, if the coalition goes backwards, if the LNP goes backwards in Queensland in the Fadden election, you know that'll put that's Dutton's home state, and it would look oh. quite bad for him. I think that would be diabolical for him. Oh, and and because of course we have a very polarised electorate at the moment, uh, in the sense that in particular when it comes to Queensland, you know, it had, we'd been previously polarised across two states, WA and Queensland, but now uh, you know WA has come back Labor's way. That's where Anthony Albanese had his campaign launch unusually at the last election, and and he now has to hold those seats. Uh, which as long as he remains popular and as long as Mark McGowan does at a state level is a sort of a double effect there. Uh, there almost isn't a Liberal Party anymore in WA at the state level. Two seats, I think it is, in the lower house. Mm. Uh, and they weren't even able to stick with the one leader, by the way, uh, in that double seat uh, representation at the state level. Oh, but Queensland would be a huge problem for the Liberal Party because at the moment the LNP are still very dominant there. Labor didn't pick up a seat in Queensland at the last election. In fact, they lost one to the Greens. Yeah, Griffith, uh, yeah. One. Uh, yeah, and so as a result, the, Libs, that's, the yeah, coalition that's, lost one to the Greens as well. Yeah, they did, but not mm. to Labor. Uh, no. And there are a number of seats there, though, that if you talk to Labor strategists, they tell you they got half or more than halfway towards picking up seats that they didn't get there at at the last election. So their hope would be to go the rest of the way at the next election. Now, on the one hand, Peter Dutton's not popular. On the other hand, he is a Queenslander. So that 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 is an interesting state to watch, even if. Uh, you know, southern states, for example, continue to desert the Liberals at the next election. Uh, do they or do they not hold Queensland? Uh, just a quick one before we take a break. Would you, if you were Labor, run a candidate in Fadden? Probably not. I would probably uh, not let our numbers be tested. I mean, obviously, they'll poll this to see if there's other reasons. But assuming you can't win, I wouldn't run. I would hope that there's a sort of third-party candidate that support can galvanise behind, and that takes out of the equation the risk that a third-party candidate doesn't get over the Labor candidate to get their preferences. So just try to have a, a disaffected 
with the right of politics candidate rather than have a campaign that becomes a case of punish the government. Yeah, I guess the only cost of that is if there is if their if their polling picks up that there is a mood against Dutton, then it's a chance to exactly. inflict some damage on him if you run a candidate and you can you know get a three or four percent swing. That would be well, yeah, and there's also the fact that um, Stuart Robert has sort of chosen to resign now, and there's this new Federal Corruption Commission coming in a bit later, which might sort of play into some of the politicking and decision-making around when this by-election might actually be administered <laughs> and the kind of brand damage that might be involved in that. It doesn't look good, does it? Yeah. Although that also raises the question, I'm not, I'm not necessarily saying this is the case, but that also raises something that we were talking about a bit earlier, are people paying attention to that or mm. are they noticing only what they're noticing in their daily lives, rising interest rates and all of those factors, which is what the coalition wants to talk about. But I think the answer to all of that is in what you said, Mark, it, it, you know, you, you do some pretty rigorous internal research before deciding one way or the other, uh, whether you were going to run or not as Labor, it wouldn't be a, uh, a back of the envelope calculation. No, not at all. Let's take a very quick break and be back in a moment. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back. We're talking about the Albanese's government, Albanese government's first year in office. Um, Maria, what for you has sort of stood out in, in sort of policy terms that, uh, uh, you know, we, we've just seen the budget, of course, and there was, in a sense, an attempt to do small things in a wide variety of areas, uh, you know, to increase the dole, to increase, uh, some of them aren't small, you know, but the parenting payment decision is quite a significant one. There's significant money going into Medicare, but there was a there very much a sense of, um, of, of meeting multiple demands here. Does that tell us something about the character of this government? Yeah, I, th I think the prioritisation is revealing about, you know, the values, I suppose. I mean, I guess I would say two things. The first one is pretty straightforward. Um, look, I think this is actually the most assured and potentially competent first-term government that we've actually had since since the Hawke government, right, since 1983. I mean, Peter would know much better than me. Um, you know, John Howard's first, you know, year or so in office was actually pretty shocking. Rudd's government essentially started unravelling at this point in time. Abbott destroyed his majority, in effect, like his his within within his party room um, quite, quite quickly within that time. So it's actually um, a huge <laughs> achievement. It's a litany of... Uh... Yeah. Yeah, average performance by the Albanese government to to actually yeah, it, look it, like adults mm. um, that they haven't they haven't actually been trying to dodge 
that many difficult debates. Like they've basically, I mean, the, the fact for them is, and this goes to the second point, is we can access this government in on two different levels. One is in absolute terms, which is I think how a lot of people are on the progressive left are. You know, they they haven't fixed New Start, they haven't fixed housing. They have it's not enough, right? But if we if we assess them in relative terms, which is sort of what I just did by saying this is probably the most competent government that we've seen, first term government we've seen since since for forty years, I think there is I don't think it's really hard to actually mark them down too too much because there are there are actually more than one very difficult policy challenge coming down the road um, at this government. And it's not just that they're politically difficult it's that they are also just in terms of actually addressing the meaningful structural problems uh, they're either quite quite complex you know if we think about the tax system the tax system is now like grossly kind of complicated and requires simplification like that is actually an administratively challenging task because you've you know once you flick one thing you get all of these interaction effects so just administratively that's challenging not to mention the politics of it. Mm. Housing, right, like that really goes to the sort of federal structure of Australia. Like that, that is a wicked problem because it requires interaction and cooperation across three levels of government. So there are, there are so many actors there. It's also really political, right? Like they're just the sort of first two um, that I can kind of think of. Climate change is sort of similar, like, yep, they've got that safeguard mechanism through, but it's not like that's done and dusted. And even if the coalition like finally decides to back in climate policy, there's the actual real world impact on people's lives and livelihoods. So that so all of the chickens are finally coming home to roost that we've been sort of running away from for, you know, ten to fifteen years now. And so when you consider all the things they have to digest, I, I think they have actually done quite a good job, even if it is not enough for for people who who really need it or just not enough for critics. Peter, it's a, it's a good point, isn't it? I mean, the, the, the government's been kind of acting like it wants to be there for a while and, and, and it has its eye to the mainstream of Australian voters rather than those critics. There will be those on the left who are impatient. We see the Greens are ascendant at the moment and doing, I think, some damage to Labor in terms of uh, its critique of, uh, of the what it says is the inadequacy of Labor's housing policy, its uh, Housing Australia Future Fund, for example, and, and a range of other things. Things, but Albanese is very much sort of directing his the character of his government toward um, the mainstream of Australia and trying to set it up for a long period. And I read a column on the weekend, kind of drawing a comparison between Albanese and Howard. In a sense, you know, there are some some hints of Howardism in the way Albanese is running his politics. And as someone who's um, written a biography of of that period of of Howard's, uh, uh, you know, the Howard government, um, I think you'd probably have some interesting perspectives on that. Yeah, I, I agree with almost everything uh, that you've both had to say in the way that you've analysed how this government has gone, you know, compared to other governments and, and compared to the needs of the nation, with one caveat that builds a little bit on what you've said, which I want to get to. But yes, you know, they certainly aren't kowtowing to their critics on the left, if I could put it that way. Anthony Albanese is well-placed not to do that, even though he's sort of a, a lefty within Labor, certainly factionally at the very least. He's also been fighting the Greens in his own electoral backyard his entire political career. So he knows how to stand up to the left, even though he is broadly speaking of the left. And I think that's been an important way to understand his approach to that. Uh, and that serves him well when seeking 
to win over the centre uh, electorally uh, as well as, you know, more broadly with, within his own party as well. So I, I agree with all of that. And I certainly think that the government comes across as adults in the room. I think that they've done better. I'd probably include, frankly, uh, the the Hawke government in terms of the, you know, their, their mechanics and their start, um, but certainly compared to you know um, the Howard government, which just lost a bunch of ministers and, and was running in all sorts of directions and struggling uh, until it galvanised around the GST, and even then, sure, it won an election and, and they aggrandise that victory, but they lost a lot of seats to do it. They had the kind of electoral fat that they could afford to do it, and that, in a sense, brings me to my one caveat, um, which builds on this idea of federation and tax reform. I, I feel like it is a wicked problem for Anthony Albanese, uh, not just in, in, in a policy sense, because he doesn't have electoral fat if he wants to go to the next election with some sort of big ticket policy that is his version of Howard's tax reform package that he took to the 98 election. John Howard could do that because he needed to do something to turn around his electoral fortunes, and he had a massive majority that he could sacrifice at the altar of reform at the 98 election. And let's not forget, sure, he won it, but he won it with 48.9% of the two-party vote. So yeah. good campaigning in individual seats got him over the line. It was the class but of my, 96, my... wasn't it? The class of 96 that stuck with him uh, and and uh, he had enough to, majority to play with there. A bit like uh, Abbott did uh, in, uh, or the coalition did in 2016 after the 2013 win. Yeah, and, and he, he was lucky enough to be able to use that to get away with then having what he called a mandate to get reform. And he was even luckier still, quite frankly, in the aftermath of it, that the Democrats pivoted uh, under new leadership and and supported it mm. uh, through the through the Senate, which which they were not expected to do, uh, whether you agree or disagree with their decision-making. But well, the reason I raised well that them. is because... It, no, it didn't. I mean, they had other problems, but, uh, but that certainly uh, brought out their problems and, and their difficulties. So... Uh, my concern, and look, you know, with the caveat that I'm still a recovering journalist, uh, so maybe I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm too, I'm, too, I'm, maybe I'm, maybe I'm too focused on on want, wanting some sort of big, big outcome to report on, even though I'm no longer doing that daily reporting. I genuinely worry that Australia is at that point where we need that federation and tax reform, and I would love to see this government use its popularity and use its persuasive skills and frankly use its willingness to have proper policy processes to be able to embark on you know a a, a, a tax reform summit like what Hawke and Keating did major reforms to follow like both Hawke and Keating as well as Costello and Howard of whatever the ilk are required today which probably do look particularly at the federation for things like housing as mentioned but also certainly tax and how to you know, update our tax system. And I would love to be able to have an adult debate about just how much tax to GDP we need to get the services from government that we want in a modern Australia. Because we've had these past silly debates about there should only be a sort of certain cap. What was it? 23.9% that the coalition said. Yeah, now, which was an Labor arbitrary figure just picked out of the oh, air. It's ridiculous. Which they've driven yeah, past and, long, many years ago. Oh, Absolutely. Now, my, my view, for what little it's worth, is that I, I suspect that most Australians in a proper debate about this, as much as they don't like higher taxes, might be willing to tolerate higher taxes in a well-considered debate for better services because of the expectations of modern governments around things like ageing or whatever else it might be. But we need to have that debate coupled with the tax debate and the federation debate. Now, I don't want to rant on this, but I'll let me end with this. My worry is that they decide that they can do all these other things, which I, I do compliment them on, and that's why I say they've been a good government. 
but they want to be a long, incremental reforming government that's a good government. But I wonder whether the times require that great leap approach to leadership, which they're not doing. Now, maybe maybe they'll end up being proven right if they're there for 10 years and they slowly get this done. My worry is that the kind of reform I'm talking about doesn't come incrementally. It is great leap reform as a necessity. Well, so it's a that good, that's a good remains point. to be seen. It's a good point, but, it, but I think that we have to factor in a couple of things here. One is Labor won with 32.6% of the primary vote. It effectively mm. won. I mean, if... if if Morrison won in 2019 by essentially not being Bill Shorten, which is largely the the way he won that election, then Labor won in 2022 by not being the Morrison government. It, you know, there was very much a sense yep. of, of 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 that kind of um, message, right? So Labor's um, strength, electoral strength, was not high, but the, the the way the system works, it was able to form a government, as you said, a small majority, which it's rather uh, amazingly increased by one, um, but it has to build slowly from that position, right? It's about establishing the credentials to do reform. It's about establishing, it's about staying true to its word. This this brings us to the uh, stage three tax cuts, for example, which is a trap that Labor now has to deal with, which it walked into willingly when we think about you know when those tax that tax package came up, it made some political calculations about not standing in the way of tax cuts for low and middle income earners in the first instance, and also not taking to an election a plan for an increase in taxes. That was a promise it made. Now Albanese and Jim Chalmers, the treasurer, are strongly committed to this idea of fidelity to election pledges, and they think this is whether whether they would support stage three in the best of all worlds. It's another matter. They they wouldn't. I think we can clearly say that, but they are committed to it and that's where they're going with it. So uh, we do see incrementalism in, in, in a whole range of ways, but perhaps some of the things we're talking about, perhaps even the aspirations you're talking about there, Peter, are the kinds of things that can come from the credibility established by being the first prime minister to actually get back to the electorate as prime minister at an election. There have been oh, no, seven- Morrison did it. Morrison did it. No, no, he hadn't faced an election before then. Yeah, I my worry though, my, I was going to say my my worry though, and, and look, don't get me wrong, I'm not suggesting that they should have just hold up right now and changed everything so quickly for a start, particularly if it included elements of what Bill Shorten took to the 2019 election, they would have been accused of all the things that previous governments that have fallen over have been accused of, which is of breaking promises. Mm. And that's the same conundrum they face around the stage three tax cuts. I get it. I guess what I'm saying is my worry is prognosticating forward that they're not going to go to the next election with these sort of big items on their agenda, which means that they're not going to do it in a second term, even if they win handsomely. And then this is the final part in that puzzle, which worries me that then they've become a two-term government. And I can't see a two-term government seeking a third term on a big tax reform and federation reform agenda because it doesn't tend to happen or it doesn't end well uh, if they end up embarking on it anyway without first alerting the public to it at an election. So my concern is that unless they can incrementally do it over 10 years as a long-term government, that it won't, it, it'll be 10 years worse if we don't do these major ticket items. And I don't think that some of the stuff around tax and federation are incremental reforms. They are, they do require that that great leap approach in, in, a, in a short-term context. Now, Maria, I can see you're about to say something. I'd be surprised if it doesn't include the question, will the media allow them to have any sort of debate like that? 
Well, okay. And that's the problem, right? Well, I think I yeah, I do I do think that is um a major part of this um story. So, I think the the concerns you've raised, Peter, are, are real, right? Like I think they're they're genuine risks. And I suppose what is kind of interesting for me from my um blue cube ivory tower, I, I work in a glass office is why I've said that. Um is is um you know, I think there's been a couple of interesting choices. Like I I do think the Albanese and Labor, Labor governments have effectively chosen to take a different approach to the sort of Faustian bargain that they've signed up to to get elected. You know, they're putting a huge premium on not breaking promises because I think they've recognised that elites, political elites coming in and saying, you really need to take this medicine, children, I know what's best for you, has really eroded trust, you know, mm-hmm. and I think that's essentially why they have resisted all of these um, calls to do a hundred days style reform project, right, where they, they break a bunch of promises, cut the budget or introduce a new tax or or float the dollar even, right, you know, and I mean, I mean, I mean, floating the dollar is, was, I think, a very sort of specific and special sort of historical circumstance but but even so and 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 the second part of that equation and I suppose potentially why it might kind of work or it might at least be a new path which we actually don't really understand is that you know it kind of goes to what Mark said about Labor winning 32% of the vote like politics in Australia even though the voting system still generates this two-party system, which is effectively um, zero sum, in in reality, that effectiveness is actually kind of breaking down and politics is increasingly, it seems, at least for now, becoming about coalition building, not just in the Senate, but in the lower house. And, and that might provide new opportunities for mid, middle government boldness. If, if I want to kind of come up with a horrible phrase. And and that doesn't mean that that's what's going to happen or what Labor will do. I mean, they might just chicken out, right? Um, plenty of governments have done it before. But I guess that's what is sort of potentially interesting about this moment in time. And and, I, and to go back to the sort of harping on about the, the Hawke government, I mean, they held that tax summit in in eighty five, you know, um, mm. so so it's it, there's Which a was historic after, the, after the second election, the eighty four yeah, election, where they went it, backwards, yeah, right, yeah, they um, went backwards in a, in the eighty four double dissolution, yeah. double dissolution, I think, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, well, that's right, and they they expanded the um, number of seats in, the, right. in the lower house, yeah. and and I, I think that is what is my final point. I promise um, is what is kind of interesting about Hawke and Albanese, like they they both sort of explicitly learnt from flame out governments, Whitlam and Rudd, and they both sort of yeah. took explicit lessons about being a long-term government. And and it's interesting, Albanese came in in 96, right, into parliament. So he's been there for, you know, 25 years um, and uh, when he becomes prime minister. And he watched that government, that long-term Howard government, and he's learned from that government as well. And you can see that in terms of the way he's uh, he uses uh, FM radio for media appearance and so forth to mm. speak to people outside. The very people you were talking about, Peter, before, the people who take no interest in politics and, and pick up just the odd fragment here and there, sometimes couldn't tell you who the prime minister was or who the treasurer was or whatever. Um, uh, yeah, I, I can see all the reasons why he's approaching it the way that he is, and he has been quite explicit uh, about him wanting to be an incremental, long-form government because you know his 
sort of 26 years in politics, he was on the wrong side of the Treasury benches for 20 of it. It's mm. actually not that different uh, to the Menzies years with the time out of government before Whitlam got his shot in 72. Mm. Uh, it's, it's not that different. So I can see why he doesn't want to go massive crash or crash through Whitlam style and be out of government in the end of, you know, three years later. I get that at a political level. I get it at a personal level. But you've got to get it at a policy level too because he makes the point that things like Medibank that Whitlam did then got undone because it was not a long-term government. I mean, this is an explicit argument he makes. But by the same token, I'm not sure that if Whitlam hadn't laid the foundations that he did around health and education and social policy more broadly, that Hawke and Keating would have been in a position to do what they did Mm after the Fraser years. So I would actually, I would come at that differently. I would say that Rudd and Gillard are more uh, comparative to the mistakes of the Whitlam era. And this is now Labor's chance, having got back into government nine years later, similar time frame to when Whitlam's old Labor colleagues, mm. some of them got back into power exactly. after the do-nothing Fraser years. We've got them back in power after the do-nothing Morrison et al. years. And this is the moment that they have to capture the same way Hawke and Keating did. And I worry that they're not going to do it. And let me just say this. This is the other thing. You know, it was Kerry Packer, wasn't it, who said you only get one Alan Bond when he got nine so cheap. <laughs> That's right. You only get one Peter Dutton, you know. And I'm not sure an environment where you've got Peter Dutton without alternatives who are going to be popular. I mean, who on earth do they go to if they don't have him? This is a unique low point. For the Liberal Party. Now, again, <laughs> I get why politically that will lead Al- Albanese towards incrementalism and towards taking that opportunity to become a long-term government. Peter Dutton and the low ebb of the Liberals creates two opportunities, which I'm not sure you can get both at once. One is to cement yourself politically as a long-term government that's incremental, but the other one is to get a lot done that's necessary right now. And they, you can't do both. They're choosing the first of those rather than the second. I get it. Maybe I would too if I was sitting there in the role. But as an outsider who's sitting in the cheap seats, I can see that the country needs them to do point number two. Maybe not in the first term, but certainly in the second term. And it's just my worry that they settle into that first approach rather than, you know, if you like, crab walk towards the second. I mean, I think that's a a legitimate fear, right, or a legitimate concern. And the best thing for the Albanese government is a successful voice referendum. Peter Dutton stays in that chair for the election and that they 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 argue for re-election based on a promise of of reform, right? Like that's that's probably yeah. their best case scenario. You know, life's not like that. The world's usually a lot crueler. Um, not all of those bits of the story might might be in place by twenty twenty five. And and what you're saying is is you know perhaps a collapse of one of those pillars might mean that that kind of plan, which seems to be their plan, might not come to fruition. And and you're right, like it, it's it is absolutely a risk. But I do think there are kind of important sort of structural changes that that make their strategy more feasible in a way that I suppose it might not have been for a Tony Abbott for all kinds of reasons, but yeah. Also, there's a difference, isn't there, with the Hawke-Keating governments being up against a Liberal government that fought about a lot of things but agreed with others. I don't see a lot of bipartisanship mm. uh, from this Liberal opposition. Yeah, it's a, it's a very good point. Another barrier. Yeah, that's yeah. another barrier too. But it, but uh, also on the upside, I suppose you might say uh, as a final comment um, that uh, Jim Chalmers is a... Uh, there are, you know, he's a very smart, big picture sort of thinker. Uh, he is thinking about this in his his 
stewardship of the treasury at this time, and we may see some bigger ambition from him, and you know it's th- that having an influence on the the government's overall horizons, and be fascinating to watch that. Of course, he's an. Well, he did his PhD on Paul Keating, didn't he? So let's let's hope that he, that he learns something the ANU, in, in doing indeed. so. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And uh, look, we haven't really got time to talk much more about the voice and obviously the political aspects of the voice, that is the political fortunes for either side about the voice, are in in my mind considerably secondary to the actual substance of the debate that the country is in and the the choice that that voters will make about it. Um, It almost seems churlish to worry about whether it's good for Dutton or good for Albanese if it goes down or gets up or or what those things are, but clearly a very defining uh, uh, sort of political event that is looming this year, and I think uh, it does have implications. It's just very hard to quantify, and let's hope um, uh, that the country gets it right. Uh, Professor Peter Van Onselen, thanks so much for coming on Democracy Sausage. We'll look forward to uh, to talking to you again in the future in your new capacity or in your revived capacity. Thanks so much for having me on. I, I had a great time. Appreciate it. And thank you to Dr. Maria Tiflaga. Thank you. Always good to have you on. And uh, we will be back with Democracy Sausage at this time next week. As I always say, you can get in touch with us at our uh, email, which is democracysausage at anu.edu.au. And you can also subscribe to this podcast, which we'd very much appreciate you doing. Uh, Until next time from the ANU, it's bye for now. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.